0: Did you know that in ancient Egypt, pomegranates were buried with the dead in order to aid in passage to the afterlife? Well, last episode I gave you a metaphorical pomegranate as we learned all about the pomegranate and its connection to blood, to death, as well as its connection to life and beauty and love and lust and fertility. We heard about some of the stories harboring these themes that directly involve the pomegranate, and we began to touch on its history with one of the most well-known mythological figures to date, Persephone. So holding our pomegranates of knowledge, I invite you to join me and descend further into Persephone's world. Today you and I are going to take a journey to the sacred temple of Persephone and holding our torches we will journey down the stone steps all the way to her home in Hades to uncover the truth and the magnificence of Persephone. Persephone's story is one of sovereignty, of lust, of power. It's also a story of transformation, divine knowledge, and transcending death. It's so much more than a story to explain the seasons or to express a maiden stepping into womanhood. Her story is a testament to the intentional erasure of powerful women throughout history and how women with power have long been a formidable foe to the patriarchal society in which we still currently reside. So how did this ancient and formidable goddess and her history become so twisted What are her true roots? What is her real legacy? Well, today, you and I are going to find out together. Persephone is a lot of things. She's queen, she's psychopomp, she's muse, she's infernal alchemist, she's the driver of souls, and, like in the pomegranate episode, we found out that she is tied to the very lifeblood of the earth itself, and so much more. So let's adorn ourselves in this sacred hymation. I've brought one here for you. Here you go. I've got one for me as well. And if you don't know what a hymation is, a hymation is like the Greek version of a toga. They were a little lighter than the Roman versions. And today, the ones we're going to be putting on are made of purple and black cloth which were the colors that the priests, priestesses, and priestesses of the cult of the two Demeters, which we'll talk about later, wore. So yeah, in Demeter and Persephone's temple, they wore purple and black. And we are going to don this purple and black, and we are going to veil our eyes in black charcoal. And together, we will go light torches and enter the temple of Persephone. Are you ready? Let's go. Here by this sacred fire, we honor blessed and infernal Persephone. She of the bright heavens and the darkest chaos. She who walks Tartarus unshielded. She who rules Hades in heart and in home. Blessed is the Daira, knowing one, sacred fruit bearer. Blessed is Persephone. I welcome and honor the great goddess and dedicate this space out of space to her. Long reign the queen of Hades and long reign Persephone. What's up, listener? Welcome back. Or if it is your first time joining me here today, welcome, welcome, I'm so happy to have you. My name is Wish, I am your hostess for the day, and today we are talking about a subject near and dear to my heart, Persephone. It is quite an honor to talk to you today about Persephone. This has been a long time coming and I have written and rewritten and written and rewritten this episode so many times trying to make sure I got it all right and got you all of the information I wanted to get to you at least that I can fit in one podcast and honestly this podcast was goddess driven. Persephone did charge me with the creation of this podcast. And for that, I just want to give her a moment of thanks and tell her thank you so much for showing me a part of your story and for letting me in and for just walking with me on this journey. And I am so, so looking forward to more of that in the future. It has truly been an honor to learn about her and to do a deep dive and find what doing a deep dive into her story has helped me learn about my personal story. And that is really the magic I want to share with you today. If you listened to the pomegranate episode, you would know that there is a little bit of a historical inaccuracy with Persephone's story. I didn't go into it too much there because I wanted to go into it here. But I do apologize if you listened to that episode. I'm going to have to go over Persephone's story that everyone knows again. So before I do that, I wanted to give a content warning here. Today's episode is not suitable for those under the age of 18 because we are going to be talking about themes that involve sexual violence and sex in general, as well as some other mature themes. So I do ask that if you are a listener 18 years or younger, you get a parent's consent before you listen to this episode. Likewise, if you are just a regular person who cannot join the conversation about sexual violence or sexual assault, I ask that you honor yourself today and maybe skip this one. That being said, let's get into it. So first, when you're talking about Persephone, you have to address the elephant in the room. And that is that the story that everybody knows about Persephone is kind of a harsh one. So what is that story? Let's go over it real quick And I'm just going to give you, like, the Cliff Notes version, okay? So, basically, what happened is Demeter had a child. And that child was Persephone. Persephone was amazing from the get-go. She was graceful. She was cute. She was so intelligent and just absolutely charmed every single person that came into contact with her. So, Demeter immediately knew that this was going to be an issue. And before Persephone was even a teenager. She had a bunch of suitors asking to be her husband. So Persephone obviously was not into that and Demeter certainly was not into that either. So Demeter decided she was going to take her daughter away from Mount Olympus and have her have the chance to grow up with people that would not try to exploit her. So that's what she did. She took her into the forests of earth, and Persephone did get to grow up in a pretty wonderful life. She was surrounded by forest nymphs and the beautiful greenery of the earth, and for a while it was very idyllic and peaceful. Now, there are different versions of this story from here on out. Some versions say that Persephone was lonely in this life shielded by her mother and she really wanted a friend and she found a friend in Hermes because Hermes was allowed to go wherever he wanted because he was Hermes and she also found a friend in Hades in some versions. In some of these versions, Hades and Persephone begin a secret romance that starts off with a friendship and they plan to escape from what is essentially Persephone's confinement, and Persephone and Hades are essentially going to elope together. Now, in other versions, more popular and told versions, uh, Hades watches Persephone from afar, and just like everybody else, is absolutely taken and charmed by her. So he goes to his brother, Zeus, and is like, hey Zeus, I have gotten the shit end of the stick in pretty much everything involving You know, being a god. So I would really like it if you would help me out here and let me marry Persephone. And for personal reasons, Zeus wants to take care of the Persephone issue. So he's like, yes, that's good. This is perfect. That will be exactly what I need. And he says, yes. And so together, Zeus, Hades, and with a little help of Gaia, plan to get Hades and Persephone to the underworld so they can be married. That's exactly what happens one way or another, whether you believe in the secret romance, friendship side, or the shitty patriarchal side. That is what happens, and Persephone gets scooped up by surprise and taken into the underworld to become queen. And while she is queen, or excuse me, while she is in the underworld, before she becomes queen, she eats six pomegranate seeds because... While Persephone is away in the underworld, her mother is freaking out and basically kills everything that's growing on the earth and the humans start to starve and they stop giving um, offerings to the gods because they are starving and eventually Zeus is like, okay, well, I need my, you know, one goat a week or that's just going to be the end of the world. So, He goes and he's like, Hades, actually, I'm sorry, you can't have her as your wife. And before Persephone is given back to her mother, depending on the version of the story, there are so many versions of these stories. These stories are so old, you guys, okay? So depending on the version of the story, Persephone is either given sneakily pomegranate seeds by Hades so that she will be forever linked to the underworld, or Persephone eats them of her own volition, and that is the the version you don't hear as much about. And she's still linked to the underworld. So like I mentioned in the last episode about pomegranates, pomegranates are directly linked to the underworld and the underworld's power. So when she eats these pomegranate seeds, Persephone is at least in part, forever a part of the underworld. They are linked forever. So she becomes queen anyways So something has to be worked out, and long story short, she ends up spending part of the year in the underworld as queen, and then the other part of the year she is with her mother on earth, and respectively, these are the cold and warm parts of the year, okay? So that's the basis of what happens with that myth that everybody knows about Persephone. But the elephant, is that oftentimes this story is called the rape of Persephone and today I want to fix a historical fallacy in my opinion about us using that title as the title of this myth because in the actual Greek translations at least from actual classical periods when this uh story would have been told through worship of the gods. Um, that is that is incorrect. That is an incorrect translation. And the actual translation is the abduction of Persephone. Because when Hades scoops Persephone up in all of the st- versions of the story, he scoops her up quickly and uh, takes her by surprise, which is the abduction part. Um, and the word they use directly translates to takes her by surprise quickly. So, you might be thinking, well, isn't that just alluding to the fact that he was taking her to rape her and make her queen via sexual violence? And no, that is actually not correct, because while the Greeks and Romans had very different um, opinions on, well, maybe not so much... We're still super in the patriarchy here, but it was very much so a man's world and um, violently so in classical Greek and Roman society. So you might think that naturally that was what they were alluding to, but they did understand what rape was. They did understand what sexual violence was. And while they might have thought it was more okay than we do now, they actually had a conjugation, four words that were alluding to the act being an act of sexual violence. And that conjugation was B-I-A. At least that's how we would recognize it in uh, English when we were translating it. And that conjugation added onto the end of a word or a sentence or something like that would be what you would use as the reader to allude to that act being an act of sexual violence. And in the... Other, older, excuse me, uh, translations of Persephone's story, the abduction of Persephone. We do not see this conjugation tacked on to the end of the word abduction that they used for abduction. Which would, scholarly, from a scholarly uh, point of view, if you're just translating it directly as they meant it, that would not allude to the fact that Persephone was actually raped It would only tell you that she was abducted and that gives you no more insight into why or how, etc. of the abduction. So now that we've fixed this historical inaccuracy on the abduction of Persephone, it's really easy to see how it would be way easier to believe in a secret romance version of the story of Persephone and Hades. Or... A story where Persephone had more autonomy in the choice to stay in the underworld than modern tellings of this story would lead you to believe. And I personally think that it is extremely disgraceful and rude to such a powerful deity that we have been telling her story completely wrong and also painting a really negative picture of her marriage because rape and abduction, while neither one are necessarily uh, desirable, um, one is significantly more desirable than the other and taking that power away from Persephone for thousands of years. whether you are just a, you know person who dabbles in mythology, or whether you are an anthropological scholar, looking at these stories. I mean, it is really disempowering, and I am putting the power back in our hands and in Persephone's hands today by fixing this here and now. I also want to address that it would be pretty flippin' rude of anybody that is partaking in deity work with Persephone to offer Persephone pomegranate seeds if you have been thinking this whole time that she was raped and forced to stay in the underworld via eating pomegranate seeds the pomegranate seeds would have been the allusion to you know her becoming queen her losing her virginity or uh autonomy and becoming hades wife connecting her to the underworld forever the pomegranate seeds would be the entire metaphorical wrapping up of that whole awful situation she was in so if you had offered Persephone pomegranate seeds I just want to express how absolutely rude and horrific that would be to give a deity something that you thought was representative of something horrible that happened in their story horrible that happened to them So if you are a person coming to this podcast who has worked with Persephone and offered her pomegranate seeds thinking that she was raped and not abducted without sexual violence, I want to encourage you to humbly light a candle for her and apologize and express that you now understand the truth of her story. Now you can come to her and stand informed and empowered knowing the truth of her story and offering pomegranates after the, especially after the end of this episode, will certainly be appropriate. But I just want to encourage you to humbly apologize if that has been you. And I will get off my soapbox now, but I just wanted to make sure that I was, you know, doing her justice in making sure that I, I stood up for her in that way. All right. So Persephone ate the pomegranate seeds in the underworld which if you listened to last episode you know my argument for the pomegranates being the actual fruit of knowledge or forbidden fruit so one way or another she eats the fruit of life and death and in turn she becomes a liminal deity or a deity of both life and of death and historically deities that hold dualistic functions are pretty powerful so the eating of the seeds is a really big deal for Persephone, and once she does this, she goes from maiden to queen, or Kore to Persephone, and Persephone itself means the destroyer. It's a title, not like a direct name, a lot like what we call so many of the gods, and that is called an epithet, so a title that is a name but not a name is called an epithet, and the name of Persephone, meaning the destroyer, is actually a dual meaning as well, playing more into her dualistic nature as a deity. So once she becomes queen, she is Persephone, meaning the destroyer, but she actually had this name before her story with Hades. So Yes, it means the destroyer, but in reference to her role with her mother Demeter and not necessarily in reference to her role as queen with Hades, although that does play into the title as well later on. Before she was with Hades, she was Kore, meaning the maiden, and she was worshipped alongside her mother Demeter. And while the crops were grown and the harvest time came, she was Persephone instead of Kore. So when she was portrayed as Koray versus Persephone, she was considered to be both the grain itself as Kore, the maiden, the new grain, and Persephone, the destroyer, when she was the force behind the scythe cutting down the grain personified. So she was both the grain itself and the force of cutting the grain down which is extremely poetic and beautiful. But this is where the beginning of her dualism of life and death began before she was queen of the underworld. This is the earliest connection to the liminal power between worlds that Persephone actually holds. And in ancient art and depictions of Persephone and Demeter, Persephone is often shown with a sheared bale of grain in one hand and a scythe in the other hand to show just how important she actually was and this art can be seen many places but mostly at the temple of the two Demeters which I mentioned earlier in Arcadia. So we see this art at the temple of the two Demeters which I mentioned a little bit earlier and these temples at Arcadia and Eleusis predate Persephone's crowning as queen of the underworld. So what does that even mean? What did that worship at these temples look like? Well, at the temple in Arcadia, she was a duality deity, maiden of spring, and maiden of the dead, i.e. the force behind the scythe. And the force behind the scythe, which kind of brings up imagery to me of like the grim reaper and whatnot, connected her to the dead. So here we have her being both a life deity with her connection to grain and a death deity and her role with death is the mysteries that we get when we talk about the mysteries of Eleusis or the Eleusinian mysteries, the most famous mystery cult the world has ever seen, still to this day talked about. We do have clues to what those mysteries were, especially in reference to Persephone's role. And at these temples, she had quite a few titles um, that we still use today and in modern practices where we work with Persephone. And those were Queen of the Dead or the Pure One, the Venerable One, the Great Goddess. All titles or epithets given to her because she was so powerful. You wanted to be on her good side because she had a toe and the very important pots of the world, and you wanted to make sure that her powers were not used against you and you did not want to offend her. So titles like the Great Goddess or the Venerable One or the Pure One were used in order to show respect. In fact, Persephone's role as a dualistic deity goes back even 300 years before the classical religion of Greece started swirling about with her story of becoming the queen of the underworld with uh the temple of the two Demeters or the Two Goddesses. And this was the Temple in Arcadia. The Temple in Arcadia preluded the temple at Eleusis or the Eleusinian mystery cult. So three hundred years prior to, you know, the modern canonical olympic gods mythology we had persephone in arcadia being worshipped as one of the two demeters in a very primordial grain earth worshiping uh, religion and she held the title of Despoigna at this temple dyspoinia translated to the lady or the mistress or the knowing one And this is a big clue as to what her role in The Mysteries were. And from what we understand, based on all of the clues, it was Persephone's role to enlighten and initiate into what happens after death. And this was done through a various number of rituals and rites and what have you. But to make it a long story short, a nutshell situation, this is what she did in the mystery cults. Again, tying back to her power as a liminal deity between life and death. Even more adding to her dualistic nature, she was worshipped with her mother side by side. Her mother was considered to be the force that made the plants want to grow. And I think that is very beautiful. The personification of the actual growing of greenery was who her mother was considered to be personifying, which is just so poetic to me, and I really feel like I could not talk about Persephone without mentioning how beautiful her mother's role was. And just like so many different mythologies about deities, her mother and Persephone were not necessarily two different beings. Persephone was actually probably more likely an aspect of Demeter that gained more popularity throughout the years, and through that became her own deity, right? Because gods, especially in Greek and Roman pantheons, did not necessarily follow human rules when it came to procreation and whatnot. Like, you could have a daughter that wasn't necessarily your daughter, but was an aspect of you that you had brought to life because you are a deity and you are of creation, creating creation. Does that make sense? So, at this ancient temple in Arcadia, at the temple of the two Demeters, Demeter I, Persephone's mother, and Demeter II, Persephone, were two sides of the same coin. Demeter being the force behind the growth of plants... And Persephone being the force that it takes to transmute plants and cut plants down and harvest plants. She was the harvesting of the plants. So you had the force that grew the plants and then the harvest of the plants. Two sides of the same coin, one goddess being worshipped as two sides of the same coin. And Persephone spiraling off of that and becoming her own thing with her own mythology as time continued on and her stories traveled farther and farther and farther out of Arcadia. And if that doesn't tell you a clue into how old Persephone actually is, the Arcadians were Greece's indigenous people. Arcadia is a mountainous region that was very much so um, cut off from classical civilization for a very long time. Arcadia outlasted Christianity longer than any other place in Greece. So just take that in. Greece, which is right beside Italy, a place in Greece in the Greek mountains, because it was so remote and cut off from everything else, Arcadia outlasted Christianity longer than any other place. That is incredible. It is mind-blowing to me, but that's where Persephone comes from. She, She is a Greek deity through and through and is probably part of the reason why the Eleusinian Mysteries have held so much allure to human civilizations since the Eleusinian Mysteries were created, since they were being performed originally in the temple at Eleusis. And the Eleusinian mysteries were inspired by the Arcadian mysteries that were taught at the temple of the Two Demeters in Arcadia. So they prelude the Eleusinian mystery cult. So Persephone has been around for a very, very long time before she became queen of the underworld. And she actually has ties to the underworld before becoming Hades queen, but, you know, patriarchal society and whatnot, she had to have a husband to give her the credibility. However, if you pay attention to how many stories we have of Persephone making really big administrative decisions in the underworld, you can start to see just how much power she actually had versus the power that Hades had, okay? Because if you're following the canonical timeline of the Greek gods on the Olympians. The Olympians took over and they claimed these dominions for themselves. Poseidon got the sea, Zeus got the sky, and Hades got the underworld. But this is what happened after. Like, there were gods, there were the titans before them. And also in ancient Greek and Roman civilizations in the classical period there was a wide acceptance of other gods being very real and very much powerful as well. They were not a one pantheon fits all. They understood that there were other civilizations with other deities that were just as powerful. So that being said when we look at the evidence it really seems like they were trying to fit this extremely powerful woman into their narrative of, you know, the patriarchal Olympian stories of the gods. I mean, Persephone allowed Orpheus to leave with Eurydice from the underworld. He allowed her to come back with him after she had died. That is a huge decision. She also let Sisyphus take home his wife from the underworld. She's allowed people to swap souls. She regularly intervenes with the death of heroes she favors. And she even lets Hercules take Cerberus to complete his last ordeal. She lets him take the dog. She's just like, yeah, you can take him as long as you bring him back. Where the hell is Hades in all these decisions? It doesn't matter because Persephone was more powerful than him. She was beloved. She was powerful. She was revered and feared as she should be. So I want to dive a little bit further into how much influence she actually had over pre-classical Greece and Rome, okay? And to do that, I want to take a look at who Persephone's children were, remembering that children were not necessarily like humans would have children, but were potentially aspects of the deity who was deemed the parent, okay? So just keep that in mind. Persephone had two children, okay? Her first was Melanoe, who was an underworld river nymph. She is amazing. I love talking about her. I love working with her. I've worked with her quite a bit, actually. And she is just badass in every sense of the word. So let's get into talking about her. She's an underworld river nymph, which, first of all, who knew that those existed? Did you? Because before I started working with Persephone, I did not know that those were a thing. But I love that those are a thing. That is... You don't get more badass than being an underworld river nymph. I cannot be convinced otherwise. I just, it will not happen. Melanoe's titles or epithets include, but are not limited to, Bringer of Madness, Queen of Ghosts. Queen of Ghosts. That, (laughs) please, please put that on my gravestone. Queen of Ghosts. That is so epic. I want people 300 years in the future to walk by my gravestone and say, Queen of Ghosts. Okay, we should probably leave now. Because that is so epic. I love it so much. Sorry. All right. So yeah, she was the bringer of madness. She <laughs> she has poetry about her coming into the human realm and having a trail of ghosts behind her and she would visit you and she would bring on nightmares or, you know, visions she would cause you to go insane in one way or another if you were not on her good side and she was coming for you on purpose you better be afraid right she had this saffron cloak that flowed behind her that dissolved into her trail of ghosts that were following clawing at their necks and their eyes and their hearts and the ground trying to escape the madness that she had brought to them and that is so cool but the poetry that talks of her doing this, that speaks of her being saffron cloaked, the saffron cloak is actually a allusion to her being connected to the moon and how this would happen after dark. Uh, there was a large uh, opinion, superstition, that certain deities and their chthonic sides or their dark sides would do things in the night. There are only two deities that have ever been called Saffron Cloaked. And that is Melanoe and Hecate, which Hecate is also my girl and I want to talk about her as well, but that's not who we're talking about now. But they are the only two deities who have been given Saffron Cloaked as a a tribute to their power and it does refer to their connection to the night or the moon and probably refers to like a, a actual halo rather than a cloak. What did Melanoe do though? Like what was her M.O. other than bringing nightmares and madness to people? <laughs> well she was the overseer of propitations or atonements for the dead in the underworld. Just like Christianity has sex like Catholic and Baptist. So did the ancient Greek religions. So if you haven't listened to last episode, do give it a listen so you can know more about what I'm talking about. But Melinoe, that's what I call her. I know it's Melinoe, but I call her Melinoe in my head every time. So if that, if I switch between those, that's why. Melinoe is the product of that seduction of Persephone by Zeus. And sometimes she is conflated with an aspect of Hecate because All the gods have different epithets. Melanoe is an epithet given to Hecate, okay? So, scholars vary when it comes to what Melanoe actually means, but in Greek, it most likely means dark-minded. Like I say, there is other meanings, but dark-minded really fits no matter where you put it. So, this being said, Melanoe wanders with a train of ghosts, and she oversees offerings to the dead with this constant train of ghosts behind her when she is fulfilling this role so seeing over the dead is potentially where this epithet comes from because melia was the term for propitations and a propitation is essentially an offering but it's an offering that comes for appeasing something the appeasement of something so ancient greeks were pretty terrified of hades place and the king and understandably they were also just as terrified of the queen so it's thought that melanoe's function was to oversee the offerings that humans gave to appease the king and queen of the underworld so they did not send them into madness or despair or even offerings they gave to shed favor on them in the afterlife looking at the fact that Melinoe upheld a very important role over the dead in the underworld, which is, like, something a queen might do. A queen would definitely oversee the offerings to the king and queen, right? You could probably safely assume that rather than being an actual daughter of Persephone, Melinoe could have been viewed as an aspect of Persephone, like I talked about. So, you put putting your mythology goggles on now, and... Yeah, Melinoe was born of Persephone's reign in the underworld. It's clear to me when I look at all of the things surrounding um, all of her stories and aspects and power and whatnot. So holding that understanding, we'll return to referencing Melinoe as her own being, separate from her mother, but we're going to keep that idea of her being an aspect rather than a separate being while we continue, okay? Persephone had Melinoe at the mouth of the river Cositis. I'm probably saying that wrong. I don't speak Greek. That's okay. Cocytus is the river of lamentation. Badass. Could Persephone have been in mourning, lamenting over Zeus's trickery, his seduction, or maybe she was expressing grief over missing her mother or her old life or whatever? Maybe she was at the mouth of the river Cocytus, the lamentation river, lamenting, and she unlocked a new version of herself, a version she had to acquiesce to to embrace the power that she now had as queen of the underworld. Anyway, this river, the river Cositus, is one of two underworld rivers that helps to pass judgment on the dead. And there are a bunch of underworld rivers and they're all really interesting, but for now, we're just gonna stick to learning about these two. How do they pass judgment? Well, I am so glad you asked. (laughs) They do this by flinging the impure souls of those at their water's edge back and forth. So they basically scoop you up with a humongous wave and thrash you on the banks of either side until you are finally washed and tumbled into a wild and terrible lake after being thrashed over and over while you cry out and make atonement. And once you make atonement enough to the liking of the river, you are then spit out into this horrific lake. And whichever river that you are swept up into depends on the severity of your crimes and which crime you have done. Long story short, you end up in one of them and you always end up in the lake. But how long it takes you to get there depends on the whims of the river at that point in time. So if you don't make atonement to the liking of these rivers, then you could be thrashed back and forth forever. (laughs) That is very creative. That is a very creative uh, way to atone for your sins. Um, Looking at you Christians, I'm just saying. (laughs) I love it. I love the darker side of mythology. I find it fascinating and it never gets old. Now that we know how they pass atonement, Let's address the fact that every single river in the underworld has its own nymphs. So, the river Cossetus, being the river of lamentation, had lamentation nymphs. Again, underworld river nymphs. That concept is just amazing to me. I love it so much I cannot express in words. And the underworld nymphs actually predate Persephone's crowning as queen of the underworld as well. And supposedly, they were a gift to Hecate from Zeus... To accompany her while she wandered the underworld. I don't really buy that for a second because Hecate is another deity that predates the Olympians, but that aside, Hecate and Persephone were friends before her abduction. She was basically like Persephone's weird witchy aunt. She's the exotic and glamorous free figure to Persephone. So first she was friends to her mother, Demeter, and then becoming a close confidant of Persephone while she grows up in the wilderness. You know, it is my personal gnosis here, but I'm willing to bet that the goddess of magic probably taught a young Kore a few magical tips and tricks during their growing friendship. So it makes sense that this friendship would continue and probably even deepen after Persephone became queen of the underworld since Hecate had been a part of the underworld for a very long time already at that point as well. And on a side note, Does that not sound like the ideal life, being away from everybody in the woods, in the beautiful lush greenery, wild mountainous woods of mountainous Greece, surrounded by wood nymphs and river nymphs and flower nymphs, just doing your thing, living a hippie life, Surrounded by no one that means you any harm whatsoever, free to frolic by day, and by night you go out and you meet your witchy aunt by star-filled waters and learn things like magic and necromancy and transformation magic and trance work and things like that. That is the ideal life, if you ask me. Just throwing it out there. Anyways, it's, you know, our job here about... Uh, ton of years into the future to put these puzzle pieces together to see the full robust picture of the actual stories of these deities which is my favorite thing to do we know that melanoe is an aspect of persephone now so these two deities are the only ones ever given this title and they are the only two deities in the greek pantheon that had the power to go anywhere they wanted in the underworld and go from underworld to human world at their leisure. I have here a hymn to Melanoe, and I want to read it to you because I think that it is interesting. Alright, here it is. I call upon Melanoe, saffron cloaked nymph of the earth, whom revered Persephone bore by the mouth of the Cosidus River, upon the sacred bed of Cronian Zeus, in the guide of Pluton Zeus, and tricked Persephone and through wily plots bedded her. A two-bodied specter sprang forth from Persephone's fury. This specter drives mortals to madness with her airy apparitions, as she appears in weird shapes and strange forms, now plain to the eye, now shadowy, now shining in the darkness, all this in unnerving attacks in the gloom of night. O goddess, O queen of those below, I beseech you to banish the soul's frenzy to the ends of the earth. Show to the initiates a kindly and holy face. This hymn is meant to placate the terriful, terriful, terrifying and powerful Melinaway. And it also shows you what I was talking about, you know, with the gloom of night. It was very much so believed that this stuff the bringing of madness and whatnot uh, came in the night. So this hymn is begging Malinowe to send away those unkind demons and souls and ghosts and spirits that bring all of the bad things in the night and also beseeching Malinowe to not do so herself. And really quickly before we move on, I want to Mention how badass she looks, Melinoe. Melinoe. Um, She's supposedly all white on one side and all black on one side, which is where in this hymn you hear a two-bodied specter sprang forth from Persephone's fury, which is... That line itself is where I am pulling my speculation of Melanoe being born from her emotions on being tricked by Zeus, and thus her becoming pregnant and giving birth to this fearsome version of herself. But that two-bodied specter bit is talking about Melanoe, Melanoe, being uh, half-white On one side and half dark on the other side. So she's supposedly ghostly and, you know, shining and glowing like you would expect a ghost to be in the moonlight, so to speak, on one side. And then on the other side, she holds the darkness and chaos of the darkest pits of the underworld of Tartarus and of the universe and the blackness of space. She is very much so, even in this version of her, a dualistic deity this time she is just dualistic in the realms of the underworld and the darkness and the dark power of the underworld. And I love that. Hopefully you do too. I I love learning about how uh, darkness expresses itself through human perception. This hymn would have been used to placate her, to give her offerings or reverence, uh, to make sure that you stayed on her good side because It was a uh, superstition that you did not speak Hades and Persephone's name out loud out of superstition, especially in the darker parts of the year. So, when Hades or when Persephone was with her husband in the underworld, she was afforded this superstition. They would instead use, you know, flattering titles like Great One or Venerable One or Melanoe. And this was done for both of them if they were doing it at all. It was only in very rare occasion that you would need to give an offering or petition to the king or queen in the colder, darker parts of the year. And if you did have to do that, it was done so with great care and extreme respect on the side of kiss to, you know, show that you were seriously doing your best to recognize how powerful they were. And you didn't want to end up, you know, not doing something, so to speak, like over the top, maybe, and having, you know, yourself go crazy or your loved one go crazy or somebody being taken too soon, you know, and those were what they feared were very, very possible. It is also fair to it is also fair to assume that Melanoe was the form that Persephone took while she was underground and was the version of Persephone that was born while she was underground. And that is who she was when she was there, which is why she was so feared and why her name was not spoken as Persephone in the darker parts of the year. And she was placated with hymns, such as the one I just read you. So that is all I got for you on Melanoe, but Persephone had another child. And he has just as epic of a history as Melanoe does, if you can believe that. So, his name is Zacharias, and he is in the Orphic tradition of classical Greek religion. So, his father is both Zeus and Hades as well, because it was in the Orphic tradition. And in the Orphic tradition... They were dualistic, and they were two sides of the same coin as well, to simplify it for our purposes today. So here's what happened. Zeus, again, seduced Persephone, and she became pregnant, and Hera, in classical Hera fashion, was very unhappy with this. She has lots of displaced anger, and she was angry at Zagreus rather than Persephone or Zeus, and she plots to kill him. So that's what she does. She goes to the Titans and she's like, hey, help me kill this guy. And she's like, and they're like, all right, sure. So they take a thunderbolt from the sky and they hurl it down and kill Zagreus. But Persephone catches on to this plan because this is, you know, typical Hera, honestly. So before Zagreus dies, Persephone manages to get his heart out of his body and she puts it into a human woman named Simile. Zagreus dies via the lightning bolt, and from the ashes of Zagreus's body, humanity is born. Humans spring up, because the idea is the heart of the deity was taken out, and what was left behind was humanity, which is A whole episode's worth of metaphors right there that we could talk about. But there's more to this story. Simile actually has the Zagreus heart in her and she gives birth to Zagreus all over again. He's reborn through Simile, through this human woman. So it's mirroring right there, the deity and humanity, the deity giving birth to to humanity and then Simile giving birth to a deity. It's a very well-rounded metaphor there that we could talk about forever, but basically we all have a spark of the divine in us is kind of what it boils down to in my opinion. But Zacharias is still a deity when he is born from Simile and eventually uh, he is conflated with Dionysus. We will talk about Dionysus. That's where I'm gonna leave it for right now, okay? Instead, I want to talk about the fact that Persephone birthed humanity (laughs) through her son. She birthed humanity. And she also rose her son from the dead. Yeah. So the first earliest written account of necromancy that we have is in the Odyssey, which was in the 5th century uh, where Odysseus uses necromancy to raise the dead to answer his questions. Odysseus learned this from Circe. Circe is the daughter of Hecate. Hecate is the crazy weird aunt of Persephone. So, it is uh, easy to see how Persephone could have potentially been taught the art of necromancy from Hecate at any point in time in her friendship with Hecate. But regardless, she is the earliest necromancer we have, even if it's not directly expressed as her performing an act of necromancy, of raising the dead. That is what happened, which is badass. This reason, precisely, is why I called her Infernal Alchemist earlier. Because over and over and over again, we see Persephone taking the energy and magic of the underworld, be it the pomegranate seeds or the heart of her son she knew was about to die and turning them into something else, something other. She transmutes that darkness. For this reason, she is an excellent deity to work with for those who are doing shadow work, who are on the left-hand path, the poison path, or even if you are interested in blood and death magic for any reason. The darker side of witchcraft, and dark doesn't necessarily have to equal bad, Uh, she is a great person to ask to work with you and to teach you and to guide you on those paths. She is the Infernal Alchemist who will help you harness the fire within to transmute and create whatever the fuck you want. And she's extremely well-rounded to work with because she holds both the light and the dark within her. And... In the lighter part of the year, and the darker part of the year, you can work on a number of things with Persephone. She is super wonderful to learn green witchcraft and trance work from um, at any point in time. She's just a really good, excellent guide to find empowerment through your craft if you are really going to dive deep into the mechanics of all of these transformative versions and paths of witchcraft, in my opinion. Can you tell that I love her? Because I do. <laughs> I mean, she, she really d- demands a level of respect, in my opinion. Persephone truly, truly demands respect. And she demands that you acknowledge how powerful she is. Once you know these things, you can't unknow them. And you can't work with her without eventually figuring these things out as well. So I suggest if you're going to approach her... I suggest you do it from an authentic place and with reverence and ultimate respect for her and her path, her story, and the power she actually holds in all the different liminal spaces of the world. If you want to approach her to see if she might work with you, you definitely should. In my experience, she is a deity who gives very clear answers very quickly. So to approach her, you could use a candle with a color that spawns corresponds with uh, whatever time of year that you are approaching her in. So spring and summer colors for spring and summer, autumn and winter colors for autumn and winter, or a black candle will always work for Persephone. Always, any time of the year. Once you have a candle, you will also need your offering. And this could be as simple or as intricate as you wish. I truly do not suggest offering pomegranate anything as a very first offering to Persephone, But I do highly recommend an offering that you have made by hand. Foods, baked goods, and crafts do go a long way with her in my experience. She's a very creative deity. She's very fiery. She has a lot of that creative energy. So speaking your desire to work with her and, you know, maybe writing her a letter on why you want to work with her or just, you know, how you feel about her, what your goal is will go a long way with her so once you have your candle and your offering i do recommend writing that letter in whatever capacity you so desire and you send it to her in earnest either by burning or burying it and it's really important that you set the clear intention on where you want your letter to go and that can be a simple to the queen of hades written on the front of the letter that works just fine That is a magic all in itself, and you use the transmutation of fire or of the earth energy by sending it to her. People would often bury offerings to Hades or Persephone in the ground because they believed that sent it right to the underworld, so you can do that as well. All right, I have thrown a lot at you today. I have had a lot of energy recording this for you, but that is all I have on Persephone today. I really hope you enjoyed it. I spent a lot of time on it. I had a lot of fun making it, and I am so happy to finally deliver it to you. It was truly an honor. I love Persephone, and I respect her so much. And one day I hope to make an episode just, like, detailing all of my experiences with different deities so then I can elaborate on how amazing she's been for me personally. But that's all I got for today's episode. Thank you for bearing with me. I'm losing my voice a little bit, so if you got through it, thank you. and. You know, I will see you next time. I know that I have promised episodes three days before the new or full moons. I have realized that my schedule is so busy right now, I cannot commit to that. So just know, you will be getting two episodes a month around the times of the moon. And that is what I can commit to right now. I will not stop making this podcast. I love doing it so much. But I just can't conform to a schedule at this very moment, but it will be around the moon times. Okay. All right. That's all I got for you. Thank you for joining me today. And I will see you next time.